welcome back to episode 28 of the Underground Christian Podcast, and thank you for supporting us and helping spread the word. Fair use warning, this podcast may contain copyrighted material pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976. Limited use is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Wow, there is a lot happening this week, and it's really hard to know where to begin. Let's start with a couple of headlines. The Western Journal, May 21st, 2022. Armed feds pay a visit from a story by OrganicWellness.com that was dated back in April 26th. Amos Miller says he is being persecuted by the federal government for practicing his religious freedom to raise and prepare food the way he believes God intended food to be raised and prepared in accordance with nature. Miller practices rotational grazing on his small, holistically managed century-old farm in Bird in Hand, Pennsylvania. His heritage breed cows are raised on organic pastures, with the chickens following behind, eating the bugs from their droppings, meaning the, you know, the bugs from the droppings of the cows, and we fed pigs trampling all the fertilizer back into the ground after that. Around 4,000 customers of his private members-only food buying club are dependent on his meat, eggs, and dairy products, as well as fermented fruits and veggies, and are willing to spend top dollar to get it shipped to them all over the country, and they don't trust food from the grocery store. But a couple of weeks ago, a federal judge told Miller to cease and desist all meat sales and sent armed U.S. marshals to search his property, farm store, and freezers. They took an inventory of all his meat to make sure he doesn't sell or slaughter any more animals. Last summer, the judge also ordered Miller to pay a $250,000 fine for contempt of court and said he will also have to pay the salaries of the USDA investigators assigned to his case. $50,000 of which was due last week as a good-faith payment to avoid jail. Slaughtering and processing the meat he raises on his own farm and selling it fresh-frozen to members of his private food-buying club, who've all signed contracts stating they understand that the meat is not processed in USDA-inspected plants or treated with USDA-required chemical preservatives, because that's how they want it, and the very reason they're willing to go to such great lengths to get it. But the USDA thinks his customers are too stupid to think for themselves and need them to come in and protect them from themselves. You probably don't know, because I didn't until Miller told me, this is the writer, that all USDA licensed processing plants are required to treat all meat, even the local grass-fed organic variety, with synthetic preservatives. Often, they use citric acid, which you'd think comes from oranges and lemons, but it's a modified substance made from corn, and they don't even have to label it on the meat, Miller said. The USDA processing plants require the meat to be treated with a chemical cocktail of citric acid, lactic acid, and parasitic acid, said a customer who handles his website and other modern communications, because he's Amish. The parasitic acid is toxic, and the citric and lactic acids are GMO. The rules and regulations are such that you have to get into debt of $100,000 before you ever sell your first pound of meat, and the market's not even guaranteed, Miller said. There's no option for farmers to start small and add equipment as they can. There's a big difference between processing a thousand animals a day and one per week. We don't need to track and trace every animal with an ear tag and report about each one to the USDA. We slaughter one animal, distribute it among our members, and then when the need arises, we slaughter another one. That's how we eat. Our members are healthy and thriving and never want to go back to where they came from. Our animals are born and raised on our own farm. We have the oversight. We know the mother. We know the father. There's no incest. There's no crossbreeding. What does the USDA label on your food do to make your food safer? Nothing. The chickens you buy from the grocery store, especially Tyson, have a built-in obesity gene, so they blow up in five weeks to heavy weight, and you eat this stuff. 
The cows are genetically manipulated to produce six gallons of milk per day instead of two. Miller said he hears of small farmers going out of business every week, and the past two years have been worse. America used to be a place people could come to make a life for themselves. But today, America is no different than every other country on earth. The government tells the people what to do, and the people, like good sheep, do it. There is not one part of society left that the government has not inserted its head into. You can do nothing without the government's permission. If it has its way, you will also be unable to do nothing if the government wants you to do something. But maybe this is because the government is concerned about our health, right? So let's look at another headline. According to thecountersignal.com, the UK government is offering a lump sum of cash to farmers as an incentive for them to either retire, sell their land, or get a different job. Similarly, in the Netherlands, the government also has targeted farmers and have positioned themselves to purchase their lands. As for Canada, former Agriculture Minister Devin Dreeshen is concerned the same thing is going to be done to Canadian farmers by PM Justin Trudeau. To take control of the food, that's Lesson 101 on how to take over a nation. Let's pick up where we left off last episode where we were looking at how the world is waging war against God, Jesus, and the Christian Church. I call it warfare because it meets the definition of warfare. According to one of the underground Christians' go-to sources of all worldly definitions, the MiriamWebster.com online dictionary, it defines warfare in three ways. A military operation between enemies. An activity undertaken by a political unit to weaken or destroy another and a struggle between competing entities. And Dictionary.com adds a helpful addition to the third definition, a struggle between competing entities, especially when vicious and unrelenting. The third definition qualifies for the conflict that's taking place between God and Satan, who are the central entities involved in the conflict. They are engaged in a vicious and unrelenting struggle on battlefield Earth, a struggle not for the territory of land control, but the territory of spiritual control. That warfare is expressed physically between the competing entities we now know as the world and the church. The world entity is the economic, social, political, and military system that's been constructed for and on behalf of Satan in order to establish control over his control over planet Earth. The church is the entity that invaded Fortress Satan in order to establish a spiritual beachhead for Jesus Christ inside hostile territory. Christians can be likened to marines who stormed the beaches of Satan's motherland. They took withering fire from the enemy's fortifications, but fought their way onto the heartland of Satan's kingdom using the weapons that Jesus Christ provided. Truth, justice, kindness, mercy, patience, self-control, and most importantly, the word of God. The world fought back using the weapons that Satan gave it, which included spreading of lies, manipulations, deceptions, treachery, divination, witchcraft, spiritism, atheism, theft, extortion, murder, all of these tools Satan gave to the world to use in the name of virtue and righteousness, because the end always justifies the means. So the third definition covers the biggest scale conflict between God and Satan, which are implemented through the world and the church. The second definition, an activity undertaken by a political unit to weaken or destroy another, defines an element of warfare that we began to examine last week, that of a physical conflict between two political enemies. The world has not attained yet to the first definition, a military operation between enemies, because that's the last stage if all else fails, and all else has not yet failed. But the second definition applies to what is going on in the physical world today. There is a political entity, the world, trying to weaken and or destroy its enemy. 
and the enemy is Christianity and its moral, social, political system that's characterized by political liberty and equality under the law. In Hosea 4.6, God said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's true. In whatever era, God's people lack knowledge. So bringing knowledge of this conflict to Christ's people is very important to God, and it should be to the people. Last week, we briefly discussed how the world's forces are divided into two divisions. The first has been tasked with using science to attack us physically, and the second has been tasked with using science to attack us spiritually. If you are new to this broadcast and want to know the reason for all these attacks, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to episode 8, God versus the World, and Episode 9, Objectives, Strategies, and Tactics. Actually, if you have the time, you really should go back and start with Episode 1 to get the full picture of what's going on. Now, many people do not perceive that we are at war, and they don't perceive it because this is not exactly a hot war. A hot war is when bombs and bullets are flying around. And it's not exactly a cold war. For those of us who grew up in the Iron Curtain Age, we remember what it means to be engaged in a cold war. But for the younger folks, let's review the definition. Merriam-Webster defines a Cold War as an intense economic, political, military, and ideological rivalry between nations short of military conflict. It is characterized by sustained hostile political policies and an atmosphere of strain between opposing countries. Merriam-Webster's alternate definition is a continuing state of resentful antagonism between two parties short of open hostility and violence. So while a hot war is easy to identify on the ground because of open aggression, a cold war is much less obvious on the ground because it engages in covert aggression. But that does not make it less serious. The 20th century version of a cold war was characterized by vicious competition between America and the Soviet Union. Since America and the Soviet Union maintained generally equivalent military capabilities, it made sense to wage the cold war through third-party countries by using military proxies and puppet governments. This prevented direct confrontations that could have led to the destruction of both sides without a clear victor. So, Cold War victory was to be achieved by stealth, one little banana republic at a time. That was Cold War 20th century style, but today we have a whole new style of warfare. It's not exactly a hot war, and it's not exactly a cold war, but rather it's a hybrid war that we might call a lukewarm war. In Revelation 3, Jesus told the church at Laodicea, I know that you are neither cold nor hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. In referring to the Christians of that church as lukewarm, Jesus was making an analogy to the city's tepid, nauseating water supply to describe his thoughts about them. We can use the same analogy to describe the kind of warfare we are currently experiencing. It's not the open destruction and savagery of a hot war where the sides are clearly defined, And it's not the deadly competition of a cold war that is carried out through third world proxies, but rather it is a conspiratorial betrayal carried out by insiders who allege to be concerned about our welfare, but who work surreptitiously behind the scenes to foment destruction. In order to wage a lukewarm war, there must be deployment of heat, that is weapons, and cold, intrigue and collusion, because a lukewarm war is just a combination of the elements of a hot war and a cold war. I don't know if you've heard, but the climate is supposedly in crisis. Some of the official predictions made about climate change sound biblical in scale. More drought, more famine, more flooding. 
more of the most powerful tropical cyclones, and of course, the seas rising. Well, that sounds ominous. What, Mr. BBC commentator, should we do about this crisis? Our current no-action path is like this, rising carbon emissions. And that would take us to a more than 4 degree rise by 2100. But there is policy in place that should restrain carbon growth onto this path. That probably means about a 3 degree rise. And if countries make good on some of their promises, it should be a touch lower than that. Scientists though have been hoping for this path, which would mean about a 2 degree rise. Now though, they say we should aim for under one and a half degrees. Now that half a degree change may not sound like much, but scientists think it could radically reduce the harm done to our world by climate change. The thing is though, to get there, we have to reduce our net carbon emissions to zero by the year 2050. Hmm, did you catch that? Scientists say we must reduce our net carbon emissions to zero by the year 2050. It sounds like all scientists everywhere are on board with this. But that can't be, because I'm a scientist and I'm not on board with this. It's hard to tell what they even mean by net zero emissions. I guess it sounds great. Windmills, solar panels, and Teslas everywhere. Free energy from the sun. The problem is that the world's population of 8 billion people is supported almost entirely by carbon fuels. Not just for conveniences like air conditioning and kitchen aid equipment, but for most of the electricity that the world generates. It makes possible nearly all the food in the world that it produces. It provides heat in winter conditions that would otherwise kill most people. And cool air in summer conditions that would otherwise kill most people. It is the essential raw material for nearly all pharmaceutical products and most chemical products that we use. It fuels the construction machinery that produces the goods that keep us alive. It fuels the transportation systems that move the goods around the world, the communications that we use to direct the movements of the goods, and the machine systems we use to plant, irrigate, harvest, and process and distribute most of the food that the world consumes. And there is no alternative substitute for this energy resource. So keep in mind that UN Agenda 2050 is a plan to eliminate all fossil fuels by the year 2050. There is an unavoidable requirement that goes along with that agenda, and it is that the world's population must be radically reduced. So here's the first bit of evidence that we have some kind of surreptitious conflict taking place. A lot of people will have to die in the next 28 years. The Georgia Guidestones, which were recently blown up by a person who objected to them, recorded that the world population should be reduced by 95%. The United Nations thinks it can make do with a 60 or 70% reduction. In a world of 8 billion people, that would be somewhere on the order of 5 to 6 billion people. So according to Mr. BBC, an unnamed and therefore shadowy group of scientists believe it is essential to get to zero carbon emissions by 2050. To support that position, Mr. BBC threw around some frightening sounding assertions. He claims the worldwide temperatures will rise 4 degrees Celsius by 2100, which supposedly will cause all the mayhem that he just described. Well, it's definitely getting warmer outside. I thought it was because it's summer, but what do I know? The scientists say it's caused by climate change. The scientists used to call it global warming, but then the world started going through a cooling event, so to save face, the climate scientists changed their trigger phrase to climate change just to cover their bases. 
So whatever direction the weather is heading, it's because of anthropogenic forcing that results in global warming or global cooling, aka climate change. And we know this because the scientists Mr. BBC is referring to have told us so. And who are these scientists? Where do they work? They are international academic professors and government scientists who worked for the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and some of them still do. These scientists have written hundreds of papers and other documents with funding from governments that are pushing the UN climate change agenda, and one of the documents they published in 2001 is a 3,000-page tome from Working Group 1 titled The Third Assessment Report on Climate. In a nutshell, the third assessment report concluded that the climate is changing due to carbon emissions, and if we don't stop it from changing, the world will suffer an unprecedented climate catastrophe that will kill millions, wreck economies, displace people groups, and result in suffering and misery for the world's entire population for the foreseeable future, if not forever. To prove that this is happening, the document featured as its central proof a graph that showed how catastrophically global temperatures were rising during the age of carbon emissions. The graph looked a lot like a hockey stick on its side with a blade pointing up and became known as the hockey stick graph. Former Vice President Al Gorp so loved the hockey stick graph that he repeatedly used it at his Inconvenient Truth climate catastrophe events to great effect. The hockey stick graph was originally published in the journal Nature in 1998 by a climate scientist by the name of Michael Evan Mann. And who is Michael Evan Mann? He is a university professor who obtained his undergraduate degrees in applied mathematics and physics at Berkeley, then went on to get a PhD in physics at Yale. So Mr. Mann, or Dr. Mann, excuse me, so Dr. Mann is a very smart guy, educated at some of the best universities that the world possesses. He probably knows his math pretty well, which is interesting because a few years after his 1998 publication, the climate catastrophists had to circle the wagons around Dr. Mann over a math problem in his paper, and they have viciously defended him ever since. That's because, in 2005, the duo of private economic statistician Stephen McIntyre and environmental economist Ross McKittrick, professor of economics at the University of Gulf in Ontario, published another paper that accused Professor Mann of using a well-known but deceptive statistical trick to produce the aforementioned hockey stick shape. They showed that the hockey stick shape is always produced when statistics are misused in the way that Dr. Mann misused them. Oh, that paper didn't go over too well in the elitist global warming cult of academia. Gosh no. That was the equivalent of declaring war against the UN and its globalist weaponized agenda, which by that time had been under development for decades in anticipation of deploying said weapon just a few years later. No, the cultists had no intention of abandoning their ace card, the single issue from which the world could impose its will on the people of the world. When Donald Trump won the presidential election in 2016, he brought in a very brief respite from the drone of climate catastrophism breathed by every leftist, scientist, media cultist, and activist for the previous 20 years. The world, of course, had to respond, and it did so by deploying its media assets to convince the people of the world that they were teetering on the edge of disaster if they had the stupidity and audacity to listen to a man like Trump. To give you a bit of a flavor of how they do their lukewarm, dirty work, here's a BBC Newsnight clip from 2018 that is titled, Why We're Heading for a Climate Catastrophe. Now, individual countries make their own climate plans. Getting them to follow through, though, is hard. For one thing, 
Getting to one and a half degrees would mean investing two and a half percent of the world economy every year from now until 2035 into energy infrastructure. According to Bloomberg, that's a sevenfold increase. So here we have the first set of lies. First of all, it's not possible to replace carbon fuel. Windmills and solar panels cannot replace even the energy produced by carbon fuels, much less the products that come from fossil fuels, no matter how much money is poured into this ridiculous endeavor. And why does Mr. BBC cite Bloomberg? What happened to scientists? 2.5% of our economy would be about £50 billion, more than we spend on defence. We cannot hold to the current standard of living and really radically decarbonise. This has cost to us, we are to be blunt, living beyond our means and no politician wants to tell us that. Ah, a little bit of truth slips out, but just a little. Destroy carbon fuel and we will definitely not live at our current means, to put it mildly. We will become impoverished in the worst possible way. We will be living a destitute existence at a barely subsistence level. Forget your morning coffee, that's going to be a thing of the past. You will own nothing and be miserable or else you won't live at all. And most people, it turns out, won't live at all. That's the part they left out. The fact of climate change is no longer in dispute. Well, speak for yourself. I dispute your version of anthropogenic climate change, meaning man-made climate change. Natural climate change is not in dispute and never has been in dispute by anyone who knows anything about the Earth because the climate changes continuously. There has been a 15-degree increase in global mean temperature since the height of the last ice age a mere 18,000 years ago. Do the climate catastrophists ever mention that? Does that put into perspective our supposed less than one degree rise in mean global temperatures in the past 150 years? We're in the middle of an interstadial. That is a climate warming event between glacial periods. The climate is still warming from the last glaciation. This back and forth between climate warming and climate cooling has been the history of the Earth for the past several million years. Warming, cooling, warming, cooling, with enormous fluctuations in temperatures throughout the, the warming and the cooling periods, sometimes over very short intervals of a few dozen years all long before fossil fuels were ever burned in cars. Is this ever mentioned? These facts are certainly well known among professional geologists like myself, who, the last time I checked, are scientists too. But never let an inconvenient fact get between an argument and a desired outcome. For a political or military operation to brainwash a population, to use a somewhat archaic term, it's best if the media is in on it. The modern term for public brainwashing is psychological operation, or PSYOP. And the following interview is a beautiful example of how PSYOPs work. Chris Cook reporting. So, is it possible to get the planet to align around the latest science? In a moment, we'll talk to Simon Beard, who studies existential risk at Cambridge University, and to Baroness Worthington, who's drafted the UK's Climate Change Act 10 years ago. So Mr. Cook claims, with no evidence at all, that there is new science about global warming that he apparently deems flawless. And so, of course, you should too, because Chris Cook is what kind of expert? Oh yes, he is not. But to support his allegations of the scientific truth of catastrophic climate change, he brings on two guests. The first is Simon Beard, a professor of existential risk at Cambridge University. 
That sounds a lot like a professor of philosophy to me. And the second is Baroness Worthington, who drafted the UK's Climate Change Act on behalf of the United Nations. No mention of the Baroness's credentials, other than she wrote some legislation. But are the chances of a global response weakened when the leader of the world's second largest polluter is sceptical? This interview is so steeped with PSYOP tactics that it is really hard to play more than a few words at a time. Mr. Cook used the term second largest polluter to describe the United States, although he has not identified it as the United States just yet. Just give him a second and he will. But the term polluter is a deliberately chosen trigger word. What does Mr. Cook mean by the term polluter? I assume, since we are talking about climate change, that he means carbon dioxide is a pollutant. That, of course, is ridiculous. It's like calling oxygen a pollutant, or water vapor a pollutant, or nitrogen a pollutant, all of which are essential components of our atmosphere and contribute to the temperature of the Earth. A pollutant is something harmful that is not supposed to be there. Carbon dioxide is not only harmless, it is a necessary component of the atmosphere for life to exist on Earth. There's no such thing as a perfect amount of carbon dioxide above which the world is imperiled. The atmosphere is a dynamic place, and the composition of gases in the atmosphere changes continuously through time. The whole basis of the argument is, quite frankly, stupid. But for the sake of argument, let's just accept his characterization of carbon dioxide as a pollutant. He says casually, the second largest polluter. Second? I wonder why he doesn't identify the first. Could it be because he doesn't want to offend his economic patron that controls the British media and pays his salary? That patron being China? Why focus on number two when he could easily bring a Chinese diplomat on the air and grill him as to why China is not only the world's largest polluter, but is actively building more pollution-generating power plants while the rest of the world is planning on shutting theirs down? Reason? PSYOP. In the US, polls show that Americans' views on climate change are increasingly polarized. Republicans and independent voters are increasingly likely to think the seriousness of global warming is exaggerated, whereas Democrats are more worried about it than before. So let's try to peek into the mindset of the administration there. I'm joined now from Washington by Myron Ebel, who was Donald Trump's environmental advisor during the presidential transition period before the inauguration. He's director of the CIA think tank that campaigns on behalf of the US energy industry and deemed the Paris Climate Agreement an unprecedented power grab on America's consumers and economy. Very good evening to you, Mr. Ebel. Um, do you think this report, this latest one, will change the administration's view on climate change at all? No, I don't. I think uh, the United States uh, is uh, divided, as you said. I think some states like California and New York and some of the New England states are pursuing the, the European Union plan to make energy more expensive. But I think uh, President Trump and the heartland states that elected him are on a very different, uh, very pro-energy path. Yeah. I mean, is the problem here that effectively belief in the United States has just gone completely political? That it's almost identity politics to show you're a proper hard Republican. You just adhere to the view that climate change is a global plot, that the UN is trying to take over the US. I mean, is that what's really going on here? Mr. Cook states a fact as if it is a ridiculous conspiracy theory, complete with chuckle, in order to preempt the objection of the United States representative with some ridicule. The one thing the human-hating world knows how to do is portray inconvenient facts as conspiracies. 
UN Agendas 2030 and 2050 quite clearly state that their goal is to replace national sovereignties with a single global sovereignty in order to compel all nations to adopt the UN Agendas. Does that sound like the UN wants to take over the United States? Ah, uh, in many ways, yes. In fact, it does. And for a leftist like Mr. Cook to seriously accuse conservatives of identity politics is really, really rich. From my perspective, it's become identity politics for the left uh, to, uh, to claim that there's uh, a, an imminent crisis. Uh, the problem with this report is it foreshortens the, the, the problem. The rate of warming, according to the data, is much slower than the models used by the IPCC. Uh, they also don't consider the fact that we've already had one degree of warming. They, they, they let, let me interrupt you because I think so let, let me interrupt because I think what you're trying to do is to sort of show that you know more about the science than the scientists, which is sort of not the case because they're the scientists. Oh, Mr. Cook, are you not trying to play the role of scientific expert by claiming that your scientists are the real scientists and any other scientists who would disagree with them are not real scientists? Only a bully would not afford a guest the opportunity to cite their scientific advisor's opinions, but Mr. Bully Cook just presumes that his are the only ones worthy of citation. What you have to do is show, not that you're cleverer than the scientists, and there were a lot of them involved in this, but that the scientists have somehow been taken over by a plot or have been infected by corruption or payments or politics. Now, have you any evidence that the science... Not, I don't want to hear your argument that the science is wrong because you don't know anything about it, but have you any, any evidence that the science has been corrupted in some way? Mr. Cook does not want to hear his views of the science because he supposedly doesn't know anything about the science. But Mr. Cook wants to know what evidence there is that the scientists have been corrupted or co-opted. Well, does that mean that the guest is an expert in corruption and co-option? Is this a trial? Can we cross-examine this aggressive blowhard? There is lots of evidence that scientists all over the world have been corrupted and co-opted to produce papers that champion the positions of governments that are trying to impose draconian policies that will be catastrophic to the functioning and health and welfare of the entire world. Scientists are panderers, just like every other kind of people. Most of them will do and say and write whatever they need to do and say and write to obtain and keep their jobs. When the research money for academics is controlled and dispensed by government agencies and closely controlled nonprofit organizations, anyone who wants to keep getting that money had better produce the kinds of articles the payers are paying for. And in today's academic world, you had better bring the grant money in if you want to have your job very long at your university. It's a great way to ensure the correct mind think throughout the entire grant-seeking academy. Well, that's enough of this interview. I can't take this guy anymore. These intimidation tactics are not new, but they are getting worse. Thirty years ago, long before the hockey stick and the IPCC were invented, the media was still talking about climate catastrophism as if it was right around the corner, but at least they were polite about it. Here's a little news clip from NBC News way back in 1983. The Reagan administration has proposed making airbags or automatic seatbelts mandatory for new cars. Critics urged immediate action. And finally, a federal report today predicted possible catastrophic warming of the Earth by the 1990s with a strong climate change. I'm Jessica Savage in New York. More news later on this NBC station. So the vine of a climate emergency was sowed a long time ago, but today has grown into the vile and wretched fruit that is a full-blown international conspiracy. 
Today, if there is a high-pressure system parked over your house in the summer, and it's hot, these climate tyrants would have you believe that your cars produced it, so we need to get rid of the cars. Having a hard time affording gasoline or diesel fuel? Well, it's because of climate change. Has your grocery bill gone up lately? Climate change. Having difficulty getting pregnant? Climate change. Climate change is so bad, in fact, that the president and thief may soon declare a climate emergency and start issuing edicts that bypass the legislative authority of Congress, that inconvenient third branch of government that is supposed to make the laws. This is an emergency, an emergency, and I will, I will look at it that way. President Biden taking new steps today to address the climate crisis, turning to his executive authority after Congress stymied his far more ambitious plans to try to combat global warming. And I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat climate, the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action. Biden is acting a lot like King George with dementia. Apparently, constitutional details that prohibit him from becoming a dictator pale to insignificance in comparison with the looming danger posed by summer sunshine and the immediate need to curb carbon emissions and nitrogen emissions and organic emissions like babies. Since Americans collectively produce a lot of these things, we have to be forcibly stopped from producing them and soon because we producing humans threaten human life on planet Earth. Yes, the evidence might be somewhat weak and the logic perverse, but we are talking about people's lives here, and there's nothing more important and sacred to our elitist globalist leaders than life, particularly theirs. That's why they have to modify the weather. Yes, I said the weather. Weather modification has been going on a long time, at least since the 1940s, so please refrain from labeling it a conspiracy theory. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of patents describing various ways to modify the weather. Even the Defense Department has taken a special interest in weather modification, and as an expert who formerly worked in military intelligence, I can tell you authoritatively that the Defense Department does not care a fig about any kind of science unless it can be adapted to function as an offensive or defensive weapon. And when the Defense Department is weaponizing a new technology, and especially a controversial technology, they are not going to tell you about it. They are not going to tell you how well it's going, or how badly it's going, or what they intend to do with it once they get the weapon operational. In fact, most of the time, they will deny there is even a weaponization program, despite the fact that we know there is a weaponization program. They will hire experts to write papers debunking any suspicions about secretive weapons programs, and retain commentators to besmirch the reputations of investigators who seek the truth about weapon systems. The commentators will mock the investigators publicly and try to humiliate them, and if that doesn't work, which it usually does, the remaining stubborn investigator might suffer an untimely and unfortunate accident. So it's very hard to find hard courtroom-quality evidence of government subterfuge and misdirection when it comes to weapon systems under development. Yet information still manages to leak out. So let's see what the Defense Department itself has admitted to doing and go from there. In its December 1996 edition, Air Force Magazine wrote, a little over a year ago, the Air Force tasked some of its most promising mid-level officers and members of other services to look hard at technology, global politics, social trends, and other critical factors, and then conjure the most stressful situations that might confront the U.S. three decades hence. The Air Force, thus forewarned, could begin to prepare itself for the challenges. That forecast, called Air Force 2025, is now complete and the potential dangers that it identifies are daunting. 
the event produced several volumes of papers that took a detailed look at many aspects of military preparedness with regard to the Air Force. The disclaimer to Event 2025 says, 2025 is a study designed to comply with a directive from the Chief of Staff of the Air Force to examine the concepts, capabilities, and technologies the United States will require to remain the dominant air and space force in the future. The views expressed in this report are those of the authors and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the United States government. Yes, and that is why they spent a ton of money to get this report written, because it does not express their views. If the chief of staff said, these are the concepts, capabilities, and technologies the United States will require to remain dominant, I don't care what anyone says. The military is going to do everything in its power it can to obtain those concepts, capabilities, and technologies. Let's read a part of the executive summary about weather modification in that report. In 2025, U.S. aerospace forces can own the weather by capitalizing on emerging technologies and focusing development of those technologies to warfighting applications. Such a capability offers the warfighter tools to shape the battle space in ways never before possible. It provides opportunities to impact operations across the full spectrum of conflict and is pertinent to all possible futures. The purpose of this paper is to outline a strategy for the use of a future weather modification system to achieve military objectives, military objectives, rather than to provide a detailed technical roadmap. In other words, they're not going to tell you how to do it, they're going to tell you what you should do. A high-risk, high-reward endeavor, weather modification offers a dilemma not unlike the splitting of the atom. While some segments of society will always be reluctant to examine controversial issues such as weather modification, the tremendous military capabilities that could result from this field are ignored at our own peril. From enhancing friendly operations or disrupting those of the enemy via small-scale tailoring of natural weather patterns, to complete dominance of global communications and counter-space control, Weather modification offers the warfighter a wide range of possible options to defeat or coerce an adversary. Some of the potential capabilities a weather modification system could provide to a warfighting commander-in-chief are listed in Table 1. And Table 1 lists the following possible technologies that would be useful in the battle space. Precipitation Enhancement Storm Enhancement Precipitation Denial Space Weather Modifications and fog and cloud removal. It goes on to say, current technologies that will mature over the next 30 years will offer anyone who has the necessary resources the ability to modify weather patterns and their corresponding effects. So in 2022, we are closing in on the end of that 30-year period. Do you suppose the military has done nothing with this technology? Now, making it rain is one thing. That's called cloud seeding, and it's been going on a long time. It's well-researched and well-developed as a technology. It has some usefulness, but as the Air Force discovered in Vietnam when they seeded clouds to induce rain to stop the resupply of the Viet Cong along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, soldiers can slog through really bad weather. But what if, rather than make it rain, the military developed the means to make it not rain? I mean, that is one of the things that they said in that article. What if they developed a technology that could keep the rain from falling over a specific area for a prolonged period of time? That would induce drought conditions. 
What if they could also increase the temperature of the area when the drought was in effect? That would exacerbate the drought and potentially create an environment for wildfires. But not only that, the elevated temperatures could be used in climate models to show that the Earth was entering a catastrophic period of runaway warming, even though the warming was produced by artificial means. No one would know, and the climate emergency thus generated could be used for all kinds of strategic purposes, depending on who was deploying it and what their strategic purposes were. But how could the government modify the weather enough to pull this off? Sunny skies and dry weather are caused when a high-pressure system parks itself over an area. Most storms will move around a powerful high-pressure system, so if the government could induce a high-pressure system to form over a specific area and maintain that pressure system for a period of time, it could induce a catastrophic drought. So the question, from a military point of view, would be, what technology could be used to form and maintain a high-pressure system over a geostrategic location? To find out, the military would need to conduct some fundamental research on atmospheric response to engineered forcing mechanisms. In other words, they would need to subject the atmosphere to high-energy emissions and see what happens. Has this been done anywhere? Well, up in Alaska, the Air Force, Navy, and Defense Advanced Research Program Agency, commonly known as DARPA, built and operated a massive microwave generating station that they called the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, or HARP. HARP has that techie sound to it, but at the same time conjures images of a peaceful tranquility. And what is HARP? Well, according to the official HARP website, HARP is a scientific endeavor aimed at studying the properties and behavior of the ionosphere. The ionosphere stretches roughly 50 to 400 miles above the Earth's surface, right at the edge of space. Along with the neutral upper atmosphere, the ionosphere forms the boundary between Earth's lower atmosphere, where we live and breathe, and the vacuum of space. Well, gosh, that sounds cool. It goes on to say, Between 1990 and 2014, HARP was a jointly managed program of the United States Air Force and United States Navy. Its goal was to research the physical and electrical properties of the Earth's ionosphere, which can affect our military and civilian communication and navigation systems. Yeah, and I wonder what else it might be able to affect. Full disclosure, the official propaganda for HARP says it can't control the weather. Now, maybe that's true, and maybe that's not true. But I bet it sure did give the military some really good insight as to how they might be able to control the weather. Remember, today we have a climate emergency, and we have hot weather, and we have drought conditions in the breadbasket of the world, and we have looming food shortages worldwide. Makes me wonder how much of this climate emergency is actually weather manipulation for the purpose of perception manipulation, so that we can destroy the fossil fuel industry to save humanity in order to unleash the 60-70% to 70 culling that will be necessary to save us from the climate emergency. These same people who claim they are so concerned with human health and welfare when it comes to climate emergency sure don't seem to have much interest in finding out what's killing people in unprecedented numbers all across America and the world today. I'm speaking of deaths that are real, not theoretical. That mystery has the best minds in medicine, including the bureaucrats at the WHO and the NIH and the CDC, utterly baffled as to its cause. And even though this mysterious dying is predominantly happening to young people, including people who had no known health issues, and young professional athletes in the prime of health, these three-letter experts can't find a single reason why this might be happening other than postulating climate change. 
They have not had time to look into it, really, but they have had time to coin a catchy acronym for it. They call it Sudden Adult Death Syndrome, or SADS. I know, the acronym does sound a bit like a joke, but I'm pretty sure they intend it to express their heartfelt condolences that they are so completely, utterly stumped and baffled about what is causing it. In a July 19 British article at the ExposeNews.com, titled, The Medical Community is Baffled by SADS, But Whatever You Do, Don't Solve the Mystery, the author, Ruseri Shanoa, or Shanua, or I don't know how to pronounce her name, writes, The medical establishment professes to know an awful lot. A few days before lockdown in March 2020, it knew that COVID was not a high-consequence infectious disease and downgraded it accordingly. Exhibiting an Orwellian capacity for doublethink, it also knew that societies ought to be bludgeoned with lockdowns to prevent the spread of the not-so-highly-consequential and therefore downgraded pathogen. In addition, it somehow just knew, without being able to explain why, that a cost-benefit analysis would be superfluous, so none was done. Until July 2020, it knew, based on decades of established science, that masking in community settings was useless in preventing the spread of respiratory illnesses. Then, with no new science to support a 180-degree turn, it just knew that masks had to be mandated. It was so certain that mass vaccination with the experimental injections was the only course of action to take in the face of the not-so-highly-consequential COVID disease that it suppressed alternative, cheap, safe, and effective treatments. It was also quite sure that it had to censor and threaten doctors like Sam White with debarment, Sam White being a medical doctor in England, because he expressed concerns about mass vaccination with the shoddily tested and hastily marketed novel, quote, vaccines, unquote, it somehow reasoned that doctors expressing genuine concern for patient safety was a threat to patient safety, and that the only way to guarantee patient safety was for every single doctor, journalist, and media outlet to sing from the same Big Pharma-sponsored hymn sheet. So, given the medical establishment's boundless knowledge in times of crisis, it's more than a little odd that it does not know why young and apparently healthy adults all over the world are dying in unprecedentedly large numbers. It is uncharacteristically stumped. It professes that there are simply no clues whatsoever to this disturbing phenomenon. It is in the grip of such uncharacteristic knowledge paralysis that it seems incapable of exploring obvious lines of inquiry, such as asking questions like, when was the last time that governments all over the world put a jackboot on the neck of every adult citizen to inject them with a novel, quote, vaccine, unquote, employing an experimental gene-based technology tested under the quality control conditions that would have run-of-the-mill crack dealers shaking their heads in disbelief? One way to solve the apparently insoluble problem of sudden adult death would be to conduct autopsies on as many sudden adult deaths as resources would allow. It turns out that the chief pathologist at the University of Heidelberg, Dr. Peter Schermacher, was doing just that very thing. In the summer of 2021, his team had just finished conducting 40 autopsies on people who had died within two weeks of vaccination and concluded that 30 to 40 percent of them had died from the vaccine. He was pushing for many more autopsies of vaccinated people. His claims were naturally dismissed by the German government. Calls by the Federal Association of German Pathologists pushing for more autopsies of vaccinated people were also treated with disdain. No other autopsies have been performed apart from 15 done by Dr. Ann Burkhart towards the end of 2021, which found clear evidence of vaccine-induced autoimmune-like pathology in multiple organs, that was a quote, in 14 of 15 cases, all of which were ignored by all health authorities and mainstream media. No further autopsies have been reported, and Dr. Schermacher and his colleagues have gone quiet after being so emphatic about the risks and the need for as many autopsies as possible. On the face of it, 
The only way to prove what is causing the uptick in mysterious sudden deaths has died a sudden death. But the sensible and mature conclusion to draw from the silence of the autopsy doctors is that they have realized they were wrong and that the powerful bureaucrats and mainstream media journalists who know nothing about autopsies were right. Only a, quote, conspiracy theorist, unquote, would think there was a cover-up going on. Right? Here's another news story with a similar focus, a little bit shorter. As reported by Margaret Meng over at the Center Square on January 1st, 2022, the One America Group of Financial Companies, a $100 billion insurance company specializing in life insurance policies for the 18 to 64 age demographic, is expressing concern over a substantial rise in deaths in adults 18 to 64 years old in 2021. The CEO of One America, Scott Davidson, said in an online news conference, We are seeing right now the highest death rates we have ever seen in the history of this business, not just at One America. The data are consistent across every player in the business, and what we saw just in the third quarter of 2021, we're seeing it continue into the fourth quarter, is that the death rates are up over 40% what they were pre-pandemic. Just to give you an idea of how bad that is, a three sigma or one in 200 year catastrophe would be a 10% increase over pre-pandemic, he said, so 40% is just unheard of. Steve Kirsch, a vaccine safety blogger, added this. Normally, death rates don't change at all. They are very stable. It would take something really big to have an effect like this. The effect size is 12 sigma. Whatever it is that's causing this, it's bigger and deadlier than COVID, and it's affecting nearly everyone. So you would think that the people who are really, really concerned with climate change, because it's so threatening to humanity, would get a little curious and want to know what might have caused this sudden surge of dying in young people that was first noticed in the fall of 2021. Dying that is impossible for the actuaries and insurance companies to explain. Could the mystery of SADS and the mystery of a 12 sigma once in a trillion year event be related? What could have happened just prior to the fall of 2021 that might have caused all this unusual death? And why aren't our leading medical examiner professionals autopsying these young people? Maybe because they are too busy intimidating and scaring people into getting a third, fourth, and fifth dose of an experimental gene-altering biological agent potion that they started distributing in large volumes in the spring and summer of 2021, just prior to all this unexplained dying. Yes, a lukewarm war is a hard one to see. The enemy could be anyone, even the very people you might expect to be your champions and defenders. In the big picture, this is a war between God and Satan. In the human picture, this is a war between the world and the church. In the national picture, this is a lukewarm war between us and someone undefined. The best way to take down a nation is to take down its food supply. And the best way to take down the food supply is to induce droughts and blame the droughts and any other natural severe weather phenomenon on climate change. With climate change comes an emergency that permits politicians to cut the greenhouse gases by eliminating carbon dioxide, that's fossil fuels, methane, that's animal agriculture, and nitrogen, that's plant agriculture. Even though these gases are naturally occurring components of the Earth, its life systems, and the atmosphere. By eliminating these systems, worldwide famine is the inevitable result with the consequence of the loss of most human life on Earth. And we haven't even solved the mystery of the sudden and mysterious deaths yet. When governments and the United Nations talk about impending worldwide famines, when they are doing everything humanly possible to destroy agricultural production, transportation systems, energy systems, power systems, and economic systems, you can be sure there is a covert, lukewarm war going on. 
So what does God have to say about all this? How are Christians to respond? Fortunately, all of this was predicted by God because he is really smart that way, and he was kind enough to provide instructions in the Bible about what to do when this covert, famine-inducing war begins. Don't you think it's time to find out? Then great! Come back next episode, and we'll continue our journey through the very timely instructions that God has given us for just such a time as this. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know, and give it a happy face or whatever your app has to encourage others to listen. Go to the beach to get away from all this oppressive heat and quietly play it on a boombox by your umbrella. Invite a friend to dinner and use it to find out if the friend is potential marriage material. If he or she likes the podcast, then yes! If he or she doesn't like the podcast, then no! And when your eyes are finally dropping off to sleep, drop a prayer line with God for this podcast to reach more people and help them personally and spiritually. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. One day, when I am inevitably fired from my job for speaking too much, I will finally have time to convert these podcasts to a video platform. Of course, without a job, I won't have the resources to put a video series together. So there you go. It's a catch-22. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes open, your ears tuned, and keep your mind focused on the work of God. And for your beach listening pleasure, here's a brief musical ending. <laughs>